Hi everyone and welcome to the Parama podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. And um, yeah, it's great to have you here again. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Um, a lot of new guests recently. Um, and this is somebody else I've met on Twitter, an author, um, and somebody who I've had a lot of good conversations with outside of, um, you know, outside of the podcast. Um, MJ Weissenberger, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. <laughs> Great to have you here. Um, thanks for coming on. Yeah. It's good. it's good to see you. Yes, it is. It is. It really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we're going to kind of hear your story today because you've got a really interesting story to tell us. So um, just before we kind of get into that, just to tell us a bit about, about you. Yeah, um, sure. I think um, a lot of my journey is going to resonate with you. I just listened to the episode of your podcast where you told your own story. And I felt like every few seconds, I was like, oh, oh, I know that. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I would say in general, um, these days, I'm no longer defining myself by what I do. Um, that the season of introducing myself by my title or my organization doesn't, it doesn't serve me anymore. Oh, wow. So I reflect yeah. more on, on how I'm being because I'm a human being, not a human doing. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's spot on. Yeah. Yeah. So being, um, I'm living in spaces of grief, rebirth, identity, and mysticism. Um, for me, that means I, I bathe in those things day in and day out, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In general, I find that my mind kind of functions um, in poetry. And so sometimes I say things, they come out, and I immediately say, oh, does that make sense? Because I'll catch myself and be like, I don't know if people say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean, actually. Sometimes I'm like, I often, I, I can outward process a lot of the time when I'm, I'm, I'm like, if I'm talking, if I get talking to somebody about something that I'm passionate about, I, I, I might suddenly things might just ideas might just suddenly appear, and I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't realize that before. Like, and it's just, yeah, I know exactly. So I know, well, I know what you mean, and yeah, it sounds like we we kind of um, kind of dance around the same the same areas. So um, this is, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, so tell us, just tell us, tell us your story. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, I'm sure you can imagine this too, when you were trialing yours, it's kind of hard to know where to start because yeah. it's all interconnected and you could start at the beginning, but that has to do with the end also. So yeah. um, I, w I will say in general, um, the journey that I've been on, I feel like I hold a lot of experience in my bones um, that isn't an academically earned title but it's just hard-earned wisdom and intuitive knowledge. And so I love sharing that with people. Um, even if there are resources that I found that I also then share with people that are more professional than just me saying, this is what my bones have experienced. Um, but yeah, so I think in general, my journey has been one of coming up against my own limits and the evil around me and time and time again, trying to reconcile both. And so a lot of that looked like my own limitations physically. Um, I had multiple near-death experiences as a child when I was very sick as an infant. 
And then from that developed upper respiratory diseases and very severe asthma for a while. And um, they've just been very physically limiting things. And then we'll get to this. But by the time I got into college, I started developing chronic pain. And I had about a 10-year journey of debilitating pain. Um, no. So, But I'm also very, like, I am very high achieving in the sense of I want to do everything and I want to do it very well. And so those limitations, um, they they hurt. And there's, like, hurt from actual pain and there's hurt from knowing that you just can't do what you know you should be capable of doing, right? Which I think um, I think people can experience that, too. I do experience that still with depression, things where I'm like, I know I'm capable of doing this thing. <laughs> I just don't have the, the capacity right now. And mm -hmm. that, that pain alone can also be jarring. So that's on the one hand. The other hand is evil. You know, I feel like from a young age, I came up against many forms of evil in the world, whether or not that was intentional or unintentional. So within my own home, um, we had the repercussions of my mother's side of the family that came out in her parenting that was abusive towards me. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't think she would describe it that way. I'm not sure if we'll ever come to an agreement on that <laughs> while she's alive. Um, but that's my lived experience. And then my parents split when I was about nine or 10. I rarely saw my father. Um, but my mother also has type one diabetes. And so I was left, al not alone, I had my brother too, but the two of us as children were left alone with a woman who had a, a genetic disease that deeply impacted the family. And the two of us had to learn almost to become adults overnight to care for her in times of medical emergency. Mm. And that, you know, that's not her fault that she has that disease. But for me, those kinds of diseases are a continual, almost like development of evil over time. How, how our bodies have decayed, how our, how our genetics have been impacted and formed, you know, formed in ways that maybe they didn't have to. So, but then there's also the issue of whether or not she managed her diabetes well and how that impacted us when she didn't. Mm. So that was, that was a lot between just my parents, but then also, you know, um, I lived through sexual assault as a teenager and um, was in a very almost borderline fundamentalist um, church at the time, or at least my youth group was very fundamentalist, even if my church was more mainline. But what that means is that when I tried to talk about that experience, I wasn't helped. I was I was harmed trying to process mm -hmm. what happened, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it just it just keeps going like that um, until a point where it just couldn't go any further. And I think I think a lot of people reach this point where they've been up against so much either pain, hardship, trauma, whatever it is, and it comes to a breaking point. It just breaks you. And for me, that was that was pain that was so debilitating I couldn't ignore it anymore. Um, it was issues in relationships that I couldn't ignore anymore. Yeah. I couldn't pretend that you know I was just quirky or whatever. I was I was a bad friend, or I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't able to be a healthy person. Um, it was issues in my career. I mean, it was it was all over the place, and I had the option, as everyone does, to play the victim and say, "Oh, woe is me," or to to try to survive and move past it, you know? So that's that's really where my journey kind of took a turn. So about the age of 27 or 28, I finally um, took was willing to take responsibility for what was my part in my life and think more, I would almost say, honestly, about what was done to me. Not from a victim mentality, but from a survivor mentality. 
what I survived, not just constantly reliving what I experienced. Because that constantly reliving mm-hmm. of trauma, it just it pulls you down into a dark space, right? <laughs> yeah, no, oh. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I love that, the, the whole kind of reframing of, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't, this, I'm not just a victim and this didn't just happen to me. Uh, I survived. I survived this. I, you know, I I lived through this, and I'm still here. Um, mm-hmm. That I know with my, you know, my trauma, my journey. That that's something I really struggle with. Like I'm shifting that mentality from being just a victim um, to being a survivor and being proactive. You know, it, it's a difficult difficult shift because. I mean, you are kind of a victim of, of some of, of, of things, and you, you know, and things that were done to you. Um, yep. We all, I mean, we all are. Um, but there's a difference between kind of being a victim and then kind of just kind of playing on it and mm-hmm. using it as an excuse for bad behaviour or causing harm. Um, yeah, and. You know, I I know I've made that mistake sometimes, and it's an easy mistake to make for if, you, if you've got if you've got if you've got wounds, if you've got trauma, they hurt. <laughs> uh, it hurts, and you know you can easily and you can un, unwittingly hurt other people with it, and it's really sad when 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 you realise you've done that, and I I had to deal with that mm-hmm. um, at one point in my journey that I you know oh gosh I caused this harm. And I didn't realize I was causing harm. Um, mm-hmm. And when you change, you change the mentality to one of taking ownership of your story, um, saying I'm a survivor of my story, um, and I need to take responsibility for how I process that that wound and that trauma. Then that changes things. Yeah, um, totally. Um, and it sounds like you went through, you know, a lot. I'm really sorry for what you went through. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, that, that, nobody should have had to go through that. And it's sad <laughs> that so many people have, you know. Um, but um, That's actually, that's really helpful language right there, that nobody should have to, right? I think for um, a while, the language wasn't, for me, it wasn't nobody should have to. The language was why me? And that that's the difference for me between I have been a victim and I am a victim right? I have been a victim. That language for me, I was, I was a victim at this point in time for this circumstance is nobody should have had to go through that. I can lament and I can be in pain that no one should have to go through that. But to say, you know, I, I am, and I still am the victim of something that happened 10 years ago, that language doesn't serve me anymore. I think, um, a good visual for this that I thought about over the years was, um, oh goodness, probably seven years ago now, my mother was in a terrible car accident um, because her blood sugar dropped too low while she was driving, and she did not um, she did not check it and take any sugar for it, and she knew that. Um, and she struck a telephone pole, I think, or an electricity pole, which would have been worse. Can't remember which. It struck her car, um, and so she shattered at least one ankle. She had to have her femur restructured. Like it was terrible, and she couldn't walk. Oh, and so. Yeah, so I, my husband and I relocated um, to move back into her home, which was very odd for me as an adult, but 
um, just to help her at that time. And there's this, when she was in the rehabilitation center, there was this sense of urgency for her to get out. She didn't want to be there. She didn't want to stay there. And as soon as they let her start practicing walking, she put all of her effort into it. And I I think that image has stuck with me because at some point when I began my most recent therapy journey, um, my therapist wound up asking me a lot of questions um, to really help me understand, am I, am I being proactive about my healing or am I licking my wounds? You know? Mm, and so oh, yeah. when, I, when I think about that image of my mom, who her legs were unusable for her own issue, like she caused it, but still she didn't sit there and play a victim in that moment. In that moment, she said, I'm going to learn to walk again. I'm going to get out of here. You know, mm. so that, that's kind of where that's coming. I have huge compassion, huge, because I lived it for so long. I have huge compassion for people who experienced the unspeakable and had to go through a period of years even of grappling with that and the pain of that. I'm not saying that, you know, the next day you just dust your shoes off and start again. But part of my healing was learning to reframe who I am versus what was done to me and who I can become still. Yeah, that's a really important shift. Really important shift. Um, yeah, I, I love that. Um, and it just reminded me, your, the story of your mum reminded me of a contrasting one with my mum that she she got brain damage when I was eight years old and had an asthma attack and lost her short-term memory and so was unable to work um was literally unable to work was um uh and for a, because she'd been so independent before and had a career and everything she found it really difficult to accept how she was how what who she mm-hmm. had become and understandably like because I mean, if in that if that happened, if that happened to any of us, we would be the same. We would, yeah, you know, we would, we would, we would struggle to 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 reach acceptance of how how we are. And and until she till she got to that acceptance, she she couldn't um, she couldn't move forward with her life. You know, her refusal to accept it led her into depression and led her into um, drinking and things mm-hmm. because she just didn't want to face the reality of what had happened and understandably i don't i don't blame her at all um and it was when she did she started to get healing and started to get um contentment and peace Mm. in her life um which she did find um before she she died but yeah you're right it's the the way we frame i love that but these things i was a victim and now I'm a survivor, like you know, like as in that—that's really, really, really important framing. Um, yeah. Like I'm not a victim now. I was a victim. Um, now I'm just living with the wounds, and I can <laughs> I can either lick my wounds or I can actually start doing the work of healing of them and um, and dealing with them, you know, yeah. um, and move forward. And yeah, that's really, really, that's really good insight. <laughs> and there is that time of, of shock where it's probably not even helpful for you to start trying to heal. Like there is, there is that period mm. right after. 
And, you know, for assault, it was shock for me. Most recently, a year, just over a year ago, my father died. And so there was shock, but I, I don't describe it as that. I describe it as a fog. I entered into a, a fog that I could not see through and that felt oppressive to breathe in. Um, every, mm. Everything was connected to that grief. It was exponential. Everything felt hard. You know, showering felt hard. <laughs> Cooking felt hard. Let yeah. alone all of the legal stuff we had to go through with his estate. Oh. And like, it's just, everything was hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. But also it felt like my brain was so slow in this thick fog and I couldn't see where I was going and I didn't know where I'd come from and I, I didn't even know who I was connected to anymore, let alone within myself. Am, am I still me? And so there's still that period where, you know, I, I have so much compassion for people in that period, especially where I, I don't think anyone can ask anybody in that period to, to move on in any kind of any kind of fashion. You're sitting in the depth of bodily shock and you just you have to honor your body while while you seek healing, even if that means putting off healing for a, for a time until your body yeah, can handle yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, and yeah, and I'm sorry that you you lost your father. Um, that's really sad. Obviously, I I know what it's like to lose a parent. I, I lost a parent when I was 23. My mother. Um, and you're right. And I I remember being in shock. I remember what it's like. I, I'll never forget it um you're kind of just numb you're like you're not yeah you're not really kind of aware of what's happening or like you're just you're just breathing in and out and just get just doing what everyone, anyone tells you to do like you know i was with my dad he picked me up from the hospital and like oh we're going to see mum's body and stuff like and they're like i was like okay just you know get went with him um because I needed to see, the, he knew I needed to see the body. I didn't know that, mm-hmm. but he knew I needed to see that so that I could get some closure um, and acceptance of, of what had happened. Um, and I saw it and then we went to her house and I was just like, I wasn't feeling anything. I was just in shock. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad, my dad got quite emotional, um, but I was just in shock um, for quite a while. Um yeah, and it, it, yeah, at that point you can't do any work on healing. Nope. Um, that's not the time. Right in the mid, right after it's just happened is not when you start processing it. You need time yeah. because you're right. There is all this kind of legal stuff which just happens, and you know, and all the kind of like organizing the funeral, planning the funeral, inviting people to the funeral. You know, it's like it's it's a maelstrom of things. Like, fortunately, my dad did most of that. Um, he was really good. He handled most of that. I, I just didn't know how to think about anything. To be honest, I wouldn't have, if I'd had to do that, all of that, I wouldn't have known where to begin. I'd have been, yeah. Um, yeah. So my, my brother and I did that without yeah. any help. And, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, we're a bit older really than yeah. you were. You know, we are, um, we were, I guess, 31 and 33 when he died, which is not the same as 23. Um, but still, Right? No. We're still too young. <laughs> and so we're in this we're in this fog and we're both looking at each other like, well, what do we do? <laughs> I guess I guess this is what they said we have to do next. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. It, it's just it's difficult to explain to somebody who's not had to deal with had to deal with it. Yeah. Especially someone who's not had to deal with it at such a you know, young age. And I, I say anyone who loses a parent under forty, that's too you know, you shouldn't be losing a parent before you're forty. Um, in normal circumstances um and yeah you're just not kind of 
ready for it. Um, I mean, if my dad died now, um, I would deal with. I'd probably deal with it a lot better than better equipped to deal with it than I was when my mother died. You know, um, I hope my dad doesn't die now, obviously. But, <laughs> but but you know, I'm 44 now, so I've done a lot of grief work, and I'm I've grown up, and I'm you know I'm, I'm, an, I'm a mature adult. So it's it's different from when you're like you know 20 or 30 in the 20s or 30s when you're still relatively young you know you're still building your life mm-hmm. um and you're not kind of you're still getting life experience and stuff so it's it's not the time to deal with all that stuff and you know yeah. um again like you shouldn't have had to deal with it at that time <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, right it's not what you expect to deal with losing a parent so oh goodness yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say a couple of things about that um, that really tie into my story. First is that, you know, my father dying at this time specifically was so, so horrid for me because um, when my parents split, my mother wound up over the next however many years weaving this narrative, intentionally or unintentionally, that my father left. That was the narrative that was created, um, which is not true. I I now know and I learned more in college that my dad had wanted to divorce, my mother didn't, and she took the children, and she moved up to be with her parents. Um, so when I was moved away from my father at the age of nine or ten, that was my mother's choice. My father didn't leave. Um, but that language, that language of your father left us, uh, that really marred my relationship with him as a teenager. Mm. I didn't. He did come to visit. I mean, that man drove almost four hours in rush hour traffic almost every Friday as he could to visit us as kids um, from another state just to see us because he loved us. But that narrative prevented me from appreciating that. It was just inside mm. the narrative was always he's not here. He doesn't want to be around, you know. So I only bring that up because it really took the second half of my 20s for me to really reconnect with and appreciate my father and so at the age of 31 you know i i was really looking forward to another 10 to 15 years of getting to know a man that i'd been estranged from essentially emotionally and he was only a year away from retiring and he was going to relocate probably two or three hours from my house so i i really had all of these expectations of a healing from from my childhood and then he dies and it I mean, it wasn't just a fog of my father died. It's also a fog of how do I reconcile the things I was still waiting to to heal from, mm. you know, without the the person I feel like I need to to heal with. So that, yeah, that was a very specific kind of oppressive yeah. grief. <laughs> yeah, so you weren't just grieving the loss of your father. You were grieving the loss of the possibility of redeeming the relationship. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. the loss of what could have been, like, and that's often the way when when parents die young. You don't just grieve the passing; you grieve of what could have been. Yep. You know, but I mean, you know, now and now, me and my sister talk about how it would have, what would our mum have thought of her grandchildren, and you know, who she's never, she, who she'll never meet, obviously, and how much she would have loved playing with them, and how much you know, all that. We we think about that sometimes, and. You know, and that obviously that never that, 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 there's, a, there's a grief there. You know that 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 never that was never that could never happen. That can never happen. And you know, um, yeah, grief has so many layers, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it, we grieve so many things. 
Um, it's not just the actual person dying. It's, it goes so much, so much deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And how did you start processing that grief and doing the grief work after, Mm. after that happened? So, um, coincidentally, this passing of my father coincided with um, officially deciding to really leave the North American white evangelical church. Um, My husband and I had been trying to really get planted into a church community within reasonable distance of our home for the past three and a half years or so since we moved to this city and found it very difficult. for a lot of reasons, <laughs> many, many reasons. But um, most importantly, we'd already been on a journey of liberation, just in theology, but also in praxis, in society. And so the churches that we were trying to plug into, that we naturally probably would have, many of them we probably would have maybe felt comfortable um, being part of, even five years prior, we weren't anymore. So when my father died, um, I had already been trying to change what voices I was allowing to speak into my life. So I'd already, I'd already begun to swap out who I was listening to, who I was taking advice from, um, who I was following on Twitter. And a lot of that for me wound up changing how I handled the pain. Because handling this grief or walking through this grief was a markedly different experience for me than any other suffering I'd been through, primarily because of the worldview that I had. So prior to this, you know, my my worldview and um, white evangelical community regularly almost suppressed pain. It, it didn't provide space, intellectually, physically, or otherwise, emotionally especially, to process pain. Mm. I was, I was constantly given these platitudes and these verses out of context from the Bible about how to hand my concerns and worries over to the Lord. And, and you know, yeah. um, we use a phrase here often, let go and let God. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I can have one side tangent. I can remember um, almost yelling at someone, you know, let go of what and let God do what? Like, let go how? <laughs> so... A lot of that for me wound up changing um, because going into this grief process, I had new words and new frameworks for what that looked like. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, and there's a, of course there's a grieving when you leave when you leave a church behind when oh, definitely. you know when you leave your when you leave a, a kind of type a, your faith behind. You know it, it, that's part of what people call deconstruction is it's a it's a grieving yep. experience so you would it kind of sounds like you were you weren't just grieving the loss of your father and the loss of the potential for your relationship with your father but also leaving behind the life that you'd had kind of in terms yeah. of church and also the identity that you'd had in that in that space at the same time all of this at the, kind of at the same time so that's a that's a lot to, to process it is a lot. And I think, um, again, your perspective, I could have sat and been overwhelmed by how much it was at one time, which I was. I definitely was overwhelmed. Hmm. But also, it, was, it, it meant that I had freedom. I, I had so much freedom to go down any path that felt healthy. 
and to honor that path. I didn't have these structures that were oppressing or preventing me from seeking healing anymore. And so yeah. it was scary. It was lonely, but it, it was, it was freeing. Yeah. Wow. And um, I think this is where, you know, mysticism to a degree comes in. And I use that term lightly. I, I don't consider myself um, an expert on Christian mysticism by any means. But, um, you know, I wound up coming back, oddly enough, to beliefs and practices from my childhood. I, I think I wound up coming full circle, essentially, in trying to remember my father and hold on to him as he was rapidly um, leaving my universe. I wound up almost going back in time to who I used to be before we moved, before we split as a family, before we got plugged into a church that wound up being very detrimental to my spirituality. And as a child, I was, I was very acutely aware at a young age um, that, that me, myself and my entity was more than my body. That, you know, my, my bones are not what make me me. Hmm. Um, if that makes sense. <laughs> So, yeah, it, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, which helped with the grief, and it helped me really walk through that pain. What does it mean for me to no longer touch my father, but to still know that my father, who he was in my mind before he died, is still there in my mind? I don't lose that. You know, mm. before he died, if you asked me about my dad, everything that I thought and felt is still there. That doesn't go away just because his body is in the earth. So that level of of him existing within me is still there. I don't have to lose it. Um, and I think those those lines of thinking, the way that I talk about them sometimes, they used to make um, people in evangelical circles in the U.S. kind of nervous, talking about being connected to your ancestors or other things that feel almost borderline witchy um, in certain circles. But, you know, that that experience of understanding that my my relationship with my father doesn't disappear just because his body disappears is literally how grieving became healing for me because I could spend time yeah. with my father still in my home, not like a crazy person, but just, you know, I don't, I don't need to, to get psychiatric help for this. I'm not pretending. I'm literally just sitting with what I remember, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I understand what you mean. I, I, you know, I mean, I've had, I've had a, I've had a, a similar, you know, experience, um, and it, you know, it's, um, I've had encounters with my my mother's consciousness, and yep. you know, and uh, transcended experiences with her, and um, and uh, and they were real. You know, I've had a few of them, and new interactions. Yeah. You know, and it took me going through the whole grieving process to, to get to that place. You know, lots of therapy, spiritual direction, processing of grief. You know, it, it took time for me to get to that place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then it kind of, when I did, it got to a, a kind of liberate, like a, like, let like you say, liberation. Um, and, yeah, I guess for me, it was, it was like, it wasn't just the, I love that way you talk about what you remember of your dad being still part of your body, the mm-hmm. the good things, you know, your awareness of your dad, your, your kind of understand your, your feeling for your dad, um, still being part of you. And, 
Um, and that that's wonderful. Um, and I kind of have that with my mother. I mean, we were quite close anyway, but um, I think, I mean, I've been, I've been grieving my mother's death for, you know, 20 years, but it, so it's mm-hmm. kind of further down the process, but like, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of came to that place of, of, of both that, that feeling that you have of, you know, them being part of you and carrying them with you everywhere you go. And also kind of a new kind of relationship with her, like that's now mm-hmm. um, and that's present now. And that it's like, and it, you know, it, it kind of sounds a bit weird when you talk about it to people who <laughs> haven't experienced it, but it's not weird. Yes. It's very real. And um, yeah, this whole thing about spirits of ancestors and stuff. And, you know, and I've talked about this elsewhere that, you know, I've learned about quantum entanglement and how, mm. you know, um, atoms which bombard each other, like leave an imprint and, you know, and how our bodies are made of atoms and stuff. And I'm thinking, well, you know, so I, am I connecting somehow with the atoms from my mother, which carry my mother's consciousness or whatever? Um, yeah. You know, and I've you know, been thinking about that. And, yeah, and and it does sound a bit kind of witchy. It does sound a bit, <laughs> you know, that, um, you know, uh, all that kind of thing. But there's nothing wrong with that, actually. Like, it's... um. Mm um because it's real it's not it's not made up it's not you know some airy fairy pie in the skies you can't deny people's experiences um, right yes people can't deny the experiences that you've had and they can't, can't deny the experiences that i've had and um yeah and that's beautiful it's a beautiful thing yeah and um i think that allowing myself to walk down that path reunited me with my understanding of divinity because, you know, if, you, if you'd if you asked me right before my dad died, when I was in the middle of considering leaving church altogether, um, if you'd asked me if I still believed in the divine, I would tell you, yes, but I don't even know how to access the divine anymore. And it was, it was, a, it, that was another kind of grief. It was, it was so sad for me because I have these very real experiences throughout my life of being connected to the supernatural. And, and yet... Going through all of this church trauma in my life, it, it you know it felt almost impossible to access anymore, and that was so harrowing for me. Mm. And so you know, walking away from that, and then my father dying, and then coming to this point of feeling the need, the literal need to cling to whatever consciousness I had left of him, brought me back full circle into how do I tether myself to the divine also who is within me. You know, I, I, I acknowledge that my father, to some, to some extent, is within me. Therefore, you know, even if you asked me in my most conservative days, does the divine live in you? I would have told you, yes, I believe that the Holy Spirit dwells within believers. I would say that. And yet, I ignored the fact that the divine was within me. It was this intellectual exercise. Mm. So, so almost this grief process also just reopened that door for what does it look like for me to change the way that I approach um, time and emotional connection to divinity and to others. It's more intentional. It's slower. I do way less talking than I ever did, but but it's more authentic and real for me. Even though I know it's transcendental, so that's sort of paradoxical that it's transcendental and yet it feels real. Um, but yeah, it, it it opened those doors in a way that I I don't ever want to take back. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. And, and, you know, it is 
when you yeah, I mean, when I, when you start to read bits of science, science about time, science about how the universe works, science about you know quantum mechanics, and you know, and you learn about um, quantum entanglement, and and then you and then you have these experiences, and then you learn about kind of you know um, astrology and, and energy, witchcraft. Um, um, healthy witchcraft I'm talking about um, not demonic witchcraft um, and and you still have that sense of the divine and mm-hmm. it's suddenly like it's like it's all all the same thing like it's like it's like all connected somehow it's yes. and it makes it like it's given and I'm sure this sounds like it's been your experience and it's been my it's definitely been mine that it's kind of makes Give you a tangible sense of of, of spirituality and mm-hmm. it being real and it being more than just kind of religious. It's like it's in the DNA of the universe. Yeah. Like you know, there's even science which can help us understand it. And it, yeah. it's And that makes it just that blows blows it wide open and makes it you know gives you more wonder. Yeah. Definitely. I uh, when I was younger, probably before high school. High school is really when I think my my faith started to be. I'm going to say warped by fundamentalism. So before high school, prior to that, um, I had a lot of instances where either older church members or people in my youth group or wherever um, would almost express concern over me having pagan practices, which is kind of how they called it. Um, which really just meant that I acknowledged the divinity in nature, right? Like, mm. <laughs> and I, I wouldn't say that I was sitting around worshiping trees, but I did wonder, you know, what is inherently wrong with embracing how the tree worships? And just just because I admire the the divinity within creation doesn't mean that I am worshiping the created thing itself. Um, yeah. And so. Yeah. So, so since, since my father's death, especially, and since allowing myself to pursue any option that feels like it's healing, um, that means that in general, my connection with the divine is much more connected to nature now. It's, it's a listening process and an admiration process. And I'm no longer what I call babbling. And I, I hate to just, you know, accuse anybody of how they pray, but the way that I used to pray now feels like babbling, just saying words out into the universe, directed to no one in particular, although you think you're talking to God. And in general, I'm not saying God doesn't hear those prayers, but I, when I think about who I was and why I was saying what I was saying versus now, how I how I speak, the spoken is not spoken by my tongue, it's spoken by my by my soul on the inside. It's these these deep um, visceral feelings and imaginations as I sit among what I acknowledge as divine around me. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just that acknowledgement that the divine is in all things. Wherever you look, for, wherever you look for for them, you will find them. Um, yeah, and it's just once you can once you see it, you can't unsee it, and it's. Amazing. Yeah. 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 So what I guess what is the biggest lesson that you've learned on this journey that you'd want other people to Oof. to know <laughs> to learn? <laughs> uh, goodness. Um 
I think <clears throat> there's many. So I'm just going to choose one that is probably at least applicable to everybody. Um, I think one place that I finally came to that's been healthy is um, the realization that I have what I need. And um, I don't necessarily mean that materially, although that is also true right now. But I, I have found in general that we live, especially in the United States, we live in a society that is, it functions entirely on scarcity. Scarcity is how the market works. It's the only way that the market works is by establishing scarcity. Yeah. Um, when you have abundance, the market crashes. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, supply and demand chain and all that stuff. So I, I think in general, when I think about having what I need, it's not just about scarcity and abundance in physical things. It's also scarcity and abundance in emotional capacity and intellectual capacity and, and the depth of spirituality within me. Um, and then my own ability to heal. Now, I had a professional. I had a therapist who was helping me. But my therapist didn't give me anything. And she said that repeatedly throughout our process. Everything that she was saying was simply questions that brought up within me what I already had. And, and that realization was so empowering because there I sat at the beginning of our time, three and a half years ago now, um, thinking there was no way out, that I'd reached my limit and I was useless as a person and um, the, the chronic pain was never going to go away and, you know, I didn't have what it takes. And here I am after walking through that journey with her, um, realizing all along I had what I needed. I just didn't know it. I listened to the outside of me telling me, you know, from evangelicalism, telling me that I can't trust my tuition and my emotions are fragile and weak and, you know, my heart is, is feeble and, and I, you know, like these, all these things telling me to deny myself. And so when I'm faced with these tragedies, I don't have access to what's in me in order to actually face them. I've taught myself to detach myself from that. Mm. So I, I think that's probably probably one of the things that's most universal out of my experience is that, of course, there are resources that help. There are all kinds of amazing authors who have impacted me and speakers and my therapist. And I'm not saying that I had, that everything that helped me heal was within me. However, um, the reframing and the courage and the persistence and even the wisdom that my bones have, ex have experienced and gained over time, like that is very real. And to ignore it, and call the, the heart and the emotions as weak or feeble is to detach yourself from the power that you have. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's powerful. I love that. Yeah. Uh, That's so true. It's everything you everything you need you already have. Yeah. I've heard that before in a few places. That's that's powerful. Yeah. Um well, thank you for sharing your story, uh, MJ. It's um, it's been really great to 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 hear you share and and, and kind of inspiring too. Thank you. I I feel like I'm I'm glad that I'm at a place where I can really talk about it more succinctly. You know, if you talked to me a year ago, it just would have been hmm. incoherent tangents <laughs> yeah, with no yeah, conclusion yeah. yet. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the journey keeps going, doesn't it? It doesn't. Um, it doesn't end. You're always learning, unlearning, growing, you know, discovering. And, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back in the future and you'll have learned more and it'll be exciting to see that. So, um, oh, 
Thanks. That's helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where can people connect with you on uh, online? Um, on Twitter, mostly. That's <laughs> that's probably the easiest way to find me. Um, and yeah, I don't really have I don't really have anything to promote. I don't have a website or anything. <laughs> no, just no. Just, yeah. <laughs> I just yeah, I follow you on Twitter, and, and it's great. Uh, I think it's at MJ Weisenberger, I think, something like that. Um, or just MJ Weisen. I probably cut my last name in half to make it easy. I think I do that. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, put it in the show notes or something. Um, okay. But, um, yeah, do give do give MJ a follow. It's, uh, she's a, a good follow on Twitter. So, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>